Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that I will be in conversation with the brilliant author and broadcaster Candice Brathwaite at The Lyric in Soho on the 1st of November, talking all about the themes of this podcast and more. You can book tickets at fane.co.uk forward slash Pandora. There were companies that have moved to four-day weeks even during the pandemic that discovered that in the course of moving everybody to remote work, adopting new collaboration tools, they found that productivity was going up enough so that it would be possible to do a four-day week and that people were sufficiently stressed from having to homeschool while simultaneously trying to run Zoom meetings that a four-day week was re- would be something that would be really appreciated by everybody. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring the ins and outs of sex, self-care and sadness and lobbing big questions at my guests like, could a four-day work week ever really take off? Why is society getting lonelier? And what would a fair justice system look like? This is a podcast that asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. What would the ideal working week look like? Could a four-day week and a three-day weekend ever really work? Alex Pang is a futurist and tech consultant based in Silicon Valley, who spent 20 years studying people, technology and our relationship with work. In his fourth book, Shorter, Alex argues that a four-day week is not only better for public health, but can also help the climate, and that you get more done when you work less. That sounds like a paradox, but Alex is no provocateur nor is this an abstract idea. He's travelled all over the world and interviewed 80 companies across hospitality, social care, media and tech to see how they've implemented a four-day work week without losing profits or paying employees any less. It doesn't always work, see our discussion of the gig economy, and I have a fair amount of cynical friends who I'll be sending this episode to, but maybe a four-day week could work better than a five-day one. In this episode, recorded in mid-August, Alex talks about how a badly designed office is worse for your health than smoking, the problem with open plan working, and why 90% of meetings are an absolute waste of time. In a pandemic where many people have been forced to work differently, this is the time to consider how we could work better. Just as a side note, you may hear a dog tap dancing in the background. Apologies for any distraction. I start by asking Alex, what's the biggest myth about a shorter work week? I would say that the biggest myth is that it's that it's impossible. There's a great saying by William Gibson that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Um, the idea being that there are already groups of people, weird outsiders or tech enthusiasts, that's already doing the things that we're all going to be doing five years from now or 10 years from now, we're already using technology that's going to be part of our daily lives. There are studies that show that the average knowledge worker loses between two and four hours of productive work time every day to distractions, to um, technology interruptions, to meetings that run too long and 
bad processes. And so in a sense, you know, we've had these improvements in workplace productivity that have made it possible for us to work a four-day week. The time savings have just been buried underneath this rubble of outdated managerial practice and outdated thinking about the relationship between work and time. And so the four-day week is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And so I think that the, you know, that the, the, the single biggest myth about our thinking about working time is that it is impossible to change or that if it's possible to change, it's only possible to lengthen. Lots of people over a number of years have challenged the idea that a working week should be five days. John Maynard Keynes famously predicted a 15-hour work week, which sadly hasn't happened. Why do you think that the four-day week is the answer? One of Keynes' contemporaries, who was also writing about work time, actually around the same time, was Bertrand Russell. And he has this lovely line in his um, essay, you know, In Praise of Idleness, that we have the possibility of two different futures, right? A world of leisure and ease for all, enabled by technology and smart investment, or a world of overwork for a few and starvation for many. And I thought Russell really hit the nail on the head there that mm. you know, we've, you know, we could have had that one future and instead we have we have the other. But and I think the good news is it's not too late to move from Russell's bad future back over to the good one. There are so many positives to working less, less stress, more energy, a better work-life balance. The obvious negative to working less or the assumed negative is that you have less money. But you argue that wouldn't actually be the case, that working less doesn't just make us happier, it makes us more productive. Can you explain how that works? The companies that I've been looking at have been reducing working hours without cutting productivity and without cutting salaries. In a sense, the only variable that they're playing with in this experiment is time. A three-day weekend also gives people more time for rest and recovery, provides them with a chance to kind of recharge the mental and physical batteries that they spend at work, thereby making it possible for them to work more effectively, more diligently, or in a more focused manner in the four days that they have. So between those two things, it becomes possible to do five days worth of work in four without sacrificing anybody's salary. So that's how it works. And the thing is, is that so many of us by Friday anyway are completely exhausted. I was talking to some friends last night and we were all saying that we never end up doing that much work on a Friday. We might be at our desk, but we're working really slowly. Nothing really great ever seems to happen on a Friday. So it's it's almost like driftwood anyway. In software, there's the term Friday deploy, which is something, you know, which is releasing new software updates on a Friday. Even within a world that is very hard charging and has a reputation for people sleeping under their desks, et cetera, that Friday is not a day in which you should, you know, in which you should do certain kinds of work. And that is something that's true in lots of industries. You know, I remember uh, an interview with um, the head of an advertising agency in London, and he was telling me that, you know, they decided to move to a four-day week when they realized Thursday night, people are already going out to the pub, so you're kind of, most people are a little hungover come Friday, and then you, know, you go to lunch and the drinks trolley comes in the afternoon, but no client wants to release any new stuff on Friday because it's never going to get any attention. And so, 
You know, it's already sort of a lost day, so why not just give it back to people? And time and again, industries that often have the easiest time moving to a shorter work week are ones in which there is already a certain slow day built into the calendar. A call center in uh, Glasgow that adopted a four-day week after they realized that, you know, looking at their numbers, 90% of their sales were made Monday through Thursday, you know, that people just really didn't buy IT services and equipment on Fridays. This is not just something that happens in your own office. This is something that's already kind of built into modern economies. You interviewed 80 companies for the book who had implemented four-day work weeks. I really implore small business owners to take notes of some of these ways in order to start by doing things differently, because I imagine it's easier to start with that culture from the ground up. Can you tell us some of the ways you learned that companies have done this? First off, no company does this for abstract reasons or really out of idealism. What they're trying to do is save their companies, save them from problems with recruitment and retention, save them from people burning out. They're often motivated by a health scare or something else that makes the founders themselves realize that they need to change the way that they work or they themselves are going to burn out and, you know, and if the company is built around them, that is going to be a disaster for lots of people. What companies do is a whole bunch of small things. For knowledge workers, for creative you know, agencies, kind of desk work, it really comes down to three big things. First of all, they make meetings shorter. The one hour weekly all hands meeting turns into a five or 10 minute standup or sometimes literally an email. And they reset things like calendaring systems so that the default for meetings gets a lot shorter. The second thing that they do is become a lot more mindful or intentional about how they use technology. So useful but often distracting things like email and Slack get checked once in the morning and once in the afternoon. Um, and then the other thing that they often do is redesign the workday itself so that everybody has particular periods where they all have permission to be a little antisocial, to focus on their most important work and you know, not answer the phone, but get through some critical set of tasks that really requires their undivided attention. This is something that I see being done, you know, not just in like professional services or creative firms where deadlines are kind of hazy or distant, but something you see also in restaurants or in nursing homes or in garages or factories. Um, I even just found out about some pest control companies in the United States that have moved to four-day weeks. I was thinking how helpful I would have found it working in an open plan office for a newspaper and I used to find it, find it really difficult to write with all of the kind of aggregate noise of being in an open plan office and you were speaking to one company who provided all of their employees with noise cancelling headphones and little red lights on their desks so that if you are in your flow someone doesn't interrupt you because in the same way that coming out of a piece of work to check email takes something like 25 minutes to get reabsorbed into your task having to take your headphones on and off and say no that's really kind I, I don't want to join that 
extraneous meeting that I've got absolutely no interest or proficiency in. And then you have to put your headphones back on and get (laughs) back into your piece of writing. And I was thinking that that would have made the most enormous difference. Whereas when I worked there five years ago, wearing headphones was seen as rude. It was seen as antisocial. You sometimes need silence for that creative engagement. And similarly, I loved the company that had this idea of everyone having a lunch break together where people sit down and they do that bonding chit chat that they might otherwise do over 10 different sessions at the water cooler throughout the day. So instead of that constant stop starting, you say, I've got a great idea, remind me about it when we have lunch or let's catch up about that project over lunch. Yeah, you know, I think that the the big lesson that draws both of those examples together is that in the workplace and in the workday, boundaries actually turn out to be really good things, right? I think that the you know the open office is a physical expression of an assumption of the virtues of boundarylessness, the removal of barriers between yourself and your colleagues. Often, seating arrangements are such that you may be sitting sitting surrounded by people from you know five different departments if it's if it's not just open plan, but unassigned and nobody who's worked in those needs to needs to be told how distracting and difficult working in those environments actually can be. The assumption that creativity happens through a kind of random, random, unpredictable interplay of ideas bounced from one person to another. The other thing you need is other kinds of time, other kinds of mental space in which you can take ideas, you can develop them, you can actually turn them into something. And very often what that requires is slower time, silence, and sort of opportunity for reflection. You know, and likewise, dividing the day up into periods for what Cal Newport calls deep work and social time turns out to be better for both, recognizing the value of boundaries and making them part of the day, even if you maintain an open office and you give everybody no, you know, the noise-canceling headphones, um, is essential to making all of that work. That idea of deep work being really essential for productivity and purpose isn't a particularly new idea, is it? It's similar to Mihai Csikszent Mihai's idea of flow. Mihai Csikszent Mihai, yeah, was the you know, started working on flow in the late seventies or so, and his real, you know, his opus magnus on this, um, very conveniently called Flow, came out I think in ninety or ninety one. But yeah, I mean, this is this is an idea that's been running around for. You know, a number of years and actually goes by, you know, different names and different professions. Athletes talk about being in the zone, which is a state that is very similar to what creatives talk about when they say they're in flow. So, but, you know, and I think that sort of deep, you know, the, the value of the concept of deep work is that it takes the psychological state and builds around it some structure that explains what you need to do in order to make it kind of part of your day or part of your regular working life, rather than something that you just kind of encounter serendipitously or just fall into at semi-random periods. You wrote Shorter before the pandemic. In the last 18 months, lots of companies, as we ease out of lockdown, have traded in their office for smaller co-working spaces and employed 
the three two method for their employees three days at home two days at the office and what i love about the three two method is that it finally forces bosses to break up with this daft idea of presenteeism that people aren't working unless you can see them which is also known as bums on seats working you describe presenteeism as the toxic partner to overworking i'm always a bit hesitant to talk about the silver linings of the pandemic because it's obviously wrought such devastation to so many lives and industries but could that be one thing that is more widely acknowledged is that presenteeism is a fallacy i certainly hope that that is one of the enduring legacies of our experience of the last year and a half we're already struggling to figure out what the new normal ought to be in how we work and there certainly are some you know some bosses and companies who would like us to go back to the way things were in February 2020. And I think that the you know, uh, there were companies that have moved to four-day weeks even during the pandemic that discovered that in the course of moving everybody to remote work, productivity was going up enough so that they uh, so that it would be possible to do a four-day week and that people were sufficiently stressed from having to homeschool while simultaneously trying to run Zoom meetings that a four-day week would be something that would be really appreciated by everybody. The four-day week, I was fascinated to read, can even help climate change. Definitely an incentive, I would have thought, that big companies who have pressure on them to emit less, they could really see that as an incentive. Could you talk us through how working less helps the climate? It does so in a couple of ways. For one thing, it depending, uh, it reduces commuting days if you move to a four-day week. Obviously, that means one day less that people have to fight traffic in order to get into the office. Um, even if you move to a shorter work day, let's say a six-hour day rather than an eight-hour day, it can be possible to play around and at least to shorten your commuting time and to be a little more effective if you're not having to go in and leave when everybody else is. Microsoft Japan is, I think, the great example of this. They trialed a four-day work week in August of, I think, 2019. And one of the things that they were interested in was what effect this would have on energy usage in the office, on the use of paper and other kinds of office supplies. And what they found was that, you know, paper usage dropped by something like 50 plus percent and energy usage through judicious turning out of automatic lights, et cetera, went down, I think, by just around 20%. Now, for big companies, this is not, you can't necessarily get to 20% across the board. If you're managing hundreds of different kinds of buildings around the world, you know, some of those may be pretty old, may not be possible to turn them into smart buildings. The fact that you are giving people back more time also means that there, uh, that um, energy intensive consumption tends to go down. So people do things like, you know, walk more rather than drive, um, cook for themselves rather than, you know, get takeout or order fast food. Um, and they make other choices that are not necessarily made with an eye towards saving energy or saving the planet, but do have these environmental benefits. So it's kind of about working shorter, but living slower. Behavioral scientists talk about, you know, things like decision fatigue and the fact that when we are, you know, when we're stressed, 
when we're when we're tired, it becomes harder for us to make good decisions or really to make any kind of decision at all. And so under those circumstances, when you are, you know, sort of when you have a reduced capacity to to plan, when you feel like you have less time, you do tend to revert to, you know, convenient but energy intensive and often less healthy choices for yourself. And so I think that the in the immediate term, you know, in terms of how you plan out the rest of your day, how you plan out your weekend, um, that does become a little more leisurely. It does mean that you have a full day for life admin, you know, dealing with the refrigerator or going to the doctor, but you also have, you know, a full day to just rest and recover. I think over the long run, um, you have an opportunity to build choices to build habits that are healthier for you and healthier for the planet in the very long run. And now a quick word from my sponsor, Zen Move, an online nationwide law firm that puts the well-being of its clients first. Moving house is stressful. For those lucky enough to be getting on the property ladder, there's a lot to get your head round. Contracts and deadlines and oodles of legal jargon. So why not eliminate that stress with Zen Move and their positive approach to conveyancing? The key is in the name. Their smooth, friendly and clutter-free approach will ensure that no one tears their hair out or forgets to feed the cat while wading through paperwork. Head over to zenmove.co.uk to get a quote and to discuss your move the Zen way. An Australian travel insurance company you interviewed who implemented a four day work week relied on an app to track employee productivity. Do we really need more surveillance in our lives? And I wonder, do we risk increasing our cultural obsession with productivity by using apps like that? One of the things to pay attention to here is with apps of that sort or with other kinds of technologies that are used for tracking time or assessing productivity, you have to ask who is it who's using it. The fact that people themselves, that employees themselves are the ones who are doing you know, most of this work means that there tends to be less in the way of top-down managerial surveillance state kinds of technologies that get implemented. The kind of data flows that come from various kinds of tracking systems or time management systems tend to feed back to individuals themselves rather than, you know, for their own improvement, rather than being getting kind of weaponized into tools that are used in the kind of gladiatorial combat of employee against employee. I think we should always be vigilant about these, about how these technologies are used. I am a little bit more optimistic having seen how they get, uh, how they get deployed and who it is who gets to deploy them and make decisions about them, that these will cause fewer problems than we might first expect. 
one of my fears, another of my fears perhaps with the four day week, and I'm a freelancer, so this isn't a personal fear, is that on that yay day or play day, as you call it, that people would still be on call, which means that they're somewhat psychologically shackled to their work or their work technology. Is there a risk that the emails and the slacks, I've never used slack, so I probably view it with much more fear than if I actually had used it is there a risk that all of those will just keep on going that day you know just a just a quick check-in because it can't wait three days first off you are your your fears your fears about slack are are perfectly well founded it's not a question of just like turning off the servers or encouraging everybody to turn off you know to turn off to turn off their machines you really need clear rules or social norms that are enforced from the top and actually are also obeyed by people from the top. Um, it is far less likely that people will you know, feel the need to you know, have that quick email check on a Friday if they know that you know, the boss has turned off her phone. And some workplaces really do have to stay open 24-7, like a hospital. A nurse cannot fit eight hours of nursing into six hours. So what happens there when the care providers like the NHS, to use an example in the UK, cannot afford to hire more staff and they're already desperately struggling to elicit more hours from the ones they have? Is it solely about improving work culture and retention so you save money not having to train up more people, which is what happens when you have a culture of overwork? You've got an extremely high turnover in the NHS. That's a good, that's a, that's a substantial part of it, but I think we should not underestimate how expensive recruitment and retention turn out to be. So, you know, um, I spent, uh, so one of the, one of the companies I talk about in shorter is a nursing home in Virginia that moved certified nurses assistants to a 30 hour work week while still paying them for 40 hours, assuming that they meant that they met certain performance benchmarks. They didn't call in sick at the last minute. They didn't take long breaks, et cetera. Um, and what they found was that, you know, you did have to hire more people because nursing is a 24, uh, 24 hour job, but you know, and that cost them something like $140,000 a year, but they saved $120,000 in because they didn't have to call an agency at the last minute to send over someone to cover a shift at, you know, three times their normal salary. They no longer had to spend any money on advertising or, or recruiting. They went from having to, you know, recruit people to having a wait list and also performance or your patient care also improved. You had residents having fewer slips and falls, um, fewer bruises, you know, less bruising, even less use of psychotropic drugs because people who had memory issues were able to get to know the carers with whom they were spending, you know, spending their days, who were helping them get dressed and fed and so on. And for people with dementias, that's actually a really big thing. Finding people to fill positions if you move to shorter work days um, is valid in the short run, but part of the point of shortening work days and work weeks is that um, it's a way of both attracting more people into that company or into that field and of keeping them there 
once they get in. And so, yeah, you do have this, you do have this kind of hump that you need to get to get past, but I have yet to see a company that starts down that road and then is unable to fill new positions and therefore goes back to, you know, five day weeks or, you know, 10 hour shifts as a result. How would the four day week work in the gig economy where you are paid per hour and thus losing eight hours a week, an entire shift would be unsustainable, perhaps on already very low wages. I just can't see how that would work unless huge companies like Uber or Amazon raised their hourly wage, which again, I can't see happening. Neither can I. And I mean, I think that the, we already know that the gig economy sucks and this is yet another reason why. So, you know, the leaders who move their companies to four day weeks do so both out of an immediate need to solve an existential problem, but they all also you know, exhibit a real care for their employees. And I think that you know, one of the things that you see in companies like Uber, they insist that they don't have employees. They have contractors. A side note here, Amazon actually call their workers associates. Even Jeff Bezos, somewhat gallingly, is an associate. And their warehouses, fulfillment centers. If you want to learn more about their inner workings, I really recommend James Bloodworth's book, Hired. They, they essentially have people who are tapping on an app and driving cars. And there's, you know, and it's, and the fact that they are human beings is perfectly incidental to them. And so I think that in firms, you know, in places that have business models that depend on an inex uh, on a functionally inexhaustible supply of workers who can be can be replaced easily with virtually no training or in industries like let's say investment banking or you know nonprofits where you regularly bring in young people by either um, you know appealing to their idealism satisfying their greed or weaponizing their ambition and using it you know in order to get them to work super long hours, um, you know, bring those people in, work them for a couple of years, and then you know, discard the desiccated husks and get a new crop of university graduates in. Um, I think a four-day week is going to be a harder sell in those kinds of places until things like the environmental benefits or outweigh the virtues of overworking people and capturing the profits for the company. It's going to be a bigger lift in places of that sort or in companies that are built around gig economy models. What about if they unionized, if workers of Amazon, but if they came together or if there was a universal basic income provider, which seems even less likely in the immediate <laughs> future, but would unionizing help? The evidence is that yes, for a couple of reasons. You know, first off, unions Unions historically have been one of the great drivers of shorter working hours. This is one of the reasons that unions exist, right? Was to to push for an eight-hour workday in the nineteenth century. Um, I think that you know also the recent experience in Iceland demonstrates how large public sector unions are able to play a critical role in moving an entire country's public sector workforce 
which is nearly 30,000 people spread across everything from tax accounting and customs to, you know, to night shift nurses, um, to shorter work weeks of between 30 and 35 hours. And so I think that the, that certainly one of the things that unions can play a positive role in, you know, in pushing this in companies and in helping companies figure out how to make it work. The Icelandic public sector union, again, organized a months long planning process to figure out, you know, to help, uh, to help different departments figure out how to make a shorter work week a success to figure out, you know, how you allocate resources, what could possibly go wrong, how you, you know, prevent problems from cropping up in the first place. And that's one of the reasons that the shorter work week in Iceland has been such a resounding success. So as for universal basic income, I think that this is, I have been more impressed than I expected to be at the outcomes of trials that have been made. Someone pointed out recently that there is one sector that a lot of us are familiar with in which there is a kind of universal basic income or universal distribution of resources, and that is games, right? Every time you pass Go and Monopoly, you collect $200. And one of the lessons of games is that giving people resources is a way of extending their ability to play and making the whole game more pleasant and fairer for all. One of the other things you do, of course, is give people more time in games, allow them to heal very quickly. For example, if they're playing first person shooters and you know, I, you can't quite draw as clear a parallel with with the shorter work week, but the fact that you are kind of, uh, that you are making certain parts of the game super productive, um, or you're augmenting people's ability to heal, to get back into, get back into play. I think also, you know, maybe offer some lessons for uh, how we can think about work time and resources, um, in, you know, in the future. Another set of people for whom I wondered if the four day week would work for are the slow workers, the workers who aren't punctual, or those with neurological traits that make it very hard for them to concentrate for four or five hours, like ADHD. Some of the companies you interviewed only gave their employees 40 hours pay for 32 or 34 hours work. If they turned up exactly on time, they lost their bonus. If they are late, the conceit being that the four day work week relies on the hours we have being used more efficiently. Is there a risk that the less efficient, less productive people will be filtered out? And is that fair? They might be really good at their job. They're just slow workers. They're a bit dreamier. It is something that we need to pay attention to. It is not something that I have heard people talk about. Thoughtful leaders will have to pay attention to. We need to make sure that the benefits of the four-day week turn out not to be ones that are sort of only enjoyed by a certain group of people, but can be available to everybody, no matter how they have worked in the past or sort of what kinds of you know, challenges they have or accommodations they need. So it does rely on an evolved, emotionally attuned, progressive boss, which again concerns <laughs> me slightly given how few of those I know. 
When I asked my Twitter followers if they would like a four day or a five day work week with obviously slightly shorter hours, five or six hours, as opposed to the eight hours or the four day, of the 180 replies, around 80% said four day. And of the 20% who said five day, most of them were parents with young children because working nine till three would fit almost perfectly with their parenting on nine till 2.30, which made me wonder what happens when your employees want different things? Hmm. Um, So uh, the answer is it depends on the company. Now, Perpetual Guardian, which is one of the most famous examples of a place that went to a four-day week, does allow people to also work shorter days or, you know, and or you know, to, to work five days if they really want to. Um, and people can make arrangements to take different days of the week off, depending upon what's necessary for them. Um, so I think that there are, you know, there are some organizations in which there are genuine benefits to having everybody together. The virtues that come from, uh, from coordination the kind of social coordination and collaboration are sufficient for companies to say, you know, in order to make this work, um, we really need everybody here together. In other firms, it is the case that there's a natural kind of ebb and flow and variability to work so that you can change up working schedules or have or different people working different schedules without particular risk to the organization. Um, I do think there is a hidden downside to that flexibility traditionally that we do need to acknowledge, which is there's you know uh, what sociologists call flexibility stigma, which is that even in well-meaning organizations that have good-looking policies on paper, it's often been the case that workers who take advantage of those programs are slower to be promoted, they're mm. sort of less recognized for their work, even while they themselves have to take on extra labor in an effort to remain visible to their colleagues mm-hmm. and their coworkers, and so that they don't inconvenience the system. And I think that the you know, one of the one of the great virtues of having everybody working the same four day week is that it turns what can traditionally be kind of competitive zero-sum exercise, right? One in which there is suspicion that your shorter work week is coming at someone else's expense or, you know, questions about, well, why, you know, why does he get to leave early while the rest of us are still slaving away and turns it into something that everybody works together in order to enable and make possible. Nobody if nobody suffers from flexibility stigma in companies that work four-day weeks because everybody enjoys the same benefit at the same time. Most of the people listening to this won't own their own company. They will likely be employed. What can you do to encourage your company to look at a different working week when it's not your company? Well, I think the first thing you can do is point to com- uh, companies like yours that are already doing it. As much as everybody likes to think that their companies are you know, super innovative, the reality is lots and lots of bosses love to go second. And I think that there are, th- th- there are plenty of examples now of firms of all kinds of sizes, ranging from two people to you know, 2,000 um, in 
all manner of industries all over the world so that you're likely to find one that is pretty similar to yours that has successfully already made this jump. The other thing is that there is a growing body of hard economic evidence about the impact that this can have and the benefits it can bring in terms of individual and organizational productivity, in terms of higher profit profitability and revenues, with and improved customer service and satisfaction, and no loss of potential clients. You know, in talking to more than 100 companies that have done this, I have heard exactly one story of a prospective client who said, we're not going to work with you because you've moved to a four-day week. This is always a very big concern for, for bosses that, you know, that if you move to a four-day week, um, your clients will take this as a sign either A, that the business is on the skids and so you've got to cut costs, or people are just getting lazy and we can go across the street to the, compet you know, to the competitors where the lights are always on and people are sleeping under their desks. In reality, clients really pretty intrigued by a shift to a four-day week, partly because it's usually sold as a demonstration of competence, right? We can do in four days what the competition can do, you know, needs five or six to do, but also because clients themselves are dealing with the same kinds of problems of recruitment and retention and burnout and founder stress that you are. And if you can solve these problems, then maybe there are things that they can learn from you to make their own lives better. My last question for you, do you work a four-day work week? You know, the companies that have moved to four-day weeks have taught me an awful lot about how to think about work and time and productivity. And so even if I, you know, even if I don't apply those lessons Monday, through, you know, Monday through Thursday, um, I still use them in throughout the rest of my week. Well, you've given me a lot to think about. Thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right, Alex. Oh, thank you, Pandora. It's been a real pleasure. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Doing It Right. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. And if you'd like, you can buy my book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? From any bookshop you like, Independent Always Better, Try Hive if you're shopping online, in which I discuss lots more of the myths and anxieties of modern life. <laughs>